I feel like I'm about to be in a press conference, so I'm going to move these right here. That would not be a fun press conference if I got that. I, there's a few, wouldn't you like to have a few things to say to some of the reporters that are out there? These days, that would be nice to unload to that, wouldn't it? All right, Matthew chapter 5. Obviously, as we have just kind of announced by video, we're going to go be working through the Sermon on the Mount for a few weeks and uh, months, probably. But we want to start in Matthew chapter 5. One of Jesus' famous, well, his most famous sermon is the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. And it's fitting that they would be called that. Uh, by the way, that terminology is not in the Bible. That's something we have called. Uh, we call it that. But it is appropriately named because the truths in this message are not easily learned. It's sort of like climbing a mountain. But if you make the effort in your life to apply the things that Jesus teaches here, you'll find joy and satisfaction. Much like a mountain climber who reaches the top of the mountain and has a, 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 the, the great, where everybody wants to be, right? At the mountaintop, the great view that comes with it. Uh, the uh, name is also fitting because of the truths within it will elevate us into mountain levels of spiritual growth. They challenge us to a higher standard, they will take us to a higher level of godly living in our life. They'll take you to the mountaintop if you live the things Jesus has said. They are patterns of Jesus Christ himself. So let's start in Matthew chapter 5, <coughs> verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to talk today for a few minutes on, let's take a note out of Uncle Si's notebook. Happy, happy, happy this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us as we begin to look at this tremendous sermon. I know we'll not even scratch the surface of all that it has to say, but may we learn something and be challenged today. In Jesus' name, amen. The Sermon on the Mount is perhaps one of the most misunderstood messages that Jesus ever gave. Uh, some say that they're instructions for salvation, so that we're supposed to <coughs> live the things that he teaches on this sermon so that we might earn our salvation. But uh, So if we ever hope to go to heaven, we have to listen and obey those rules. That is not the purpose of this sermon. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount does not tell us how to be saved. Rather, it tells saved people how to live. It's a sermon for Christians in that day, and Christians today, and in Christians in days to come. Uh, so it's a vital sermon for us to study for several reasons. Uh, the essentials of the new birth are revealed uh, in this sermon. Its standards are too high and demanding for us to obey ourselves. And as we work through it, uh, we'll get to begin to get an understanding. I know sometimes we give a cursory reading, but if you start reading the things that Jesus tells us to do, these are impossibilities. They're not, humanly speaking, we just, uh, we're not able to do these things that he asks us to do. So only those who partake in God's nature uh, through his, being his child, through the person of Christ, can fulfill these demands. The standards of the Sermon on the Mount go far beyond the Mosaic law. Sometimes we think that not being in Old Testament times, being in New Testament times, we have it easier. Not really. Because they demand not only righteous actions, but righteous attitudes. 
uh, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, you see that it's not only about us doing that which is right, it is us being right. And can I tell you, friends, it's always more difficult to be right than it is to do right. Anybody can uh, fulfill a list, a to-do list of things that you have to check off, but to be right is much more difficult. So God's example for happiness and success are found in this sermon. It reveals the standards that God wants us to fulfill in our life as Christians. Uh, the only way that we can reach God's spiritual standards, by the way, is with His help, as we'll see. And that's where we'll find the peace and joy and com uh, contentment that He promises. It's also another reason it's important for us to learn. It's a great evangelistic tool or resources for telling others about Christ. A Christian who personifies what Jesus teaches in this sermon will be a spiritual magnet drawing other people to Christ like they are, attracting them. The life that is obedient to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, I really believe this, is one of the church's greatest tools for evangelism. People living right, loving right, doing right, treating each other right is a great attraction. The elements of how to please the Lord with our life are found in this message. This is uh, the believer's highest reason for doing anything that the Bible says, and that is to please God. In the late 1860s, doctors were still largely unaware of the science of bacteria. There's a man named Joseph Lister. He was a British surgeon who campaigned for new, uh, basically some, ra at that time, radical new ideas uh, for operating room procedures. At that time, the medical hygiene of surgeons was terrible. Uh, they would uh, not scrub their hands. They would wear their street clothes to do surgeries. And uh, surgical dressings were made from pressed sawdust that they would uh, harvest from local log mills. Instruments that they would use were sometimes washed in soapy water, but they were not sterilized. So as you might imagine, some 90% of people that came into surgery would die, not because of the injury they had, but because of infection afterwards. Yet the majority of doctors thought that Lister was a nut, and they scoffed and, uh, at his ideas for cleanliness. The doctors that did implement his ideas uh, had fewer post-operation deaths, uh, very a lot fewer infections, and they had higher survival rates. It's obvious that he was onto something. Uh, later, it, it, to honor Dr. Lister, another Missouri doctor, Joseph Lawrence, invented a mouthwash, and we're all pretty aware of this. We still use it today. He named it in honor of Lister, called it Listerine. How many of you use Listerine? Uh, use the, the blue stuff, right? That's the good stuff. That other stuff's like gasoline. I've never figured out why anybody would use that. That's all they do. They fill them at the pump. Uh, but, but this is, uh, so 125 years later, we're still using this and uh, we're honoring uh, Dr. Lister whenever we do. So Lister's message, really of his life, his mission was cleanliness. And that's the mission of the Sermon on the Mount, spiritually speaking, cleanliness. The theme is true righteousness and godliness. Righteousness, when we use that word, really, that all that means is living right and living in obedience to God's word. This sets us apart as his children, as Christians, which we ought to be. A profession of faith in Christ 
really doesn't mean that much without obedience and holiness. See, there's an idea that is many churches are proponents of in today's day and age that you can live how you want to live, you can be who you want to be, you can identify as what you identify, just come and we'll accept you as you are. Well, so will we, but we don't expect you to stay that way in your sin, if, if it is sin that you're involved in, amen? So the purpose of church is that we come, yes, come as you are, but leave change. Let God uh, create a new you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it, it talks about a transformation. And that's what the Bible says. When we come to Christ, we are a new creature. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The religious leaders in Jesus' day had an artificial, external righteousness based on the law. But the life that Jesus describes begins a little deeper than just uh, external. It begins internally in the heart. The Pharisees were obsessed with the minute details of all their rules and regulations that they had set up. Much of they had written, God hadn't. They'd made these things up. And, uh, but they neglected their character. So they were all about their conduct, but didn't care about their character. And when a person is born again, there's a change in the character and, and behavior of that person. We ought to be defined by the life that we live. Uh, if there is no distinction between me and you as children of God and the world, then what are we doing? What effect are we going to have? What impact are we going to have? None at all. There has to be a distinction. At the beginning of the Civil War, there was some confusion on the battlefield because of uniforms. The gray uniforms that the South wore, that was called, uh, known as the rebel color, so the gray uniforms the South wore were also worn by some of the soldiers of the North. Units from Wisconsin, Iowa, Maine, New York, and Illinois, uh, the, the certain groups of their infantry drilled and fought in gray uniforms. At the first battle of Manassas, this proved catastrophic as men fired at their own troops because of the confusion of the uniforms. It was difficult for them to tell who was on what side. Because of the shortage of cloth, uh, the 2nd Texas Infantry did something different. We don't want to uh, do the same thing that happened there, and so what we'll do is we'll go with pure white uniforms. So we'll definitely stand out from the others that way. Well, they did that, and they had more problems because now they got shot at from both sides. And that's not really funny, but I mean, it's, it's a little bit humorous because uh, they, they didn't work either because of the confusion of the uniform. Another southern uni unit called the Orleans Guard had blue uniforms. That caused them to be mistaken for Yankees, and they were also fired on by their own army. All the problems they had was created by a failure to clearly identify which side they were on. The same thing happens when we claim to be Christians, but we live like the devil. When we claim to be one thing, and yet we are another. That makes people around us confused about where we really stand, about whose side we are really on. I ask you today, dear friend, if you're a Christian or a professing child of God, whose side are you on? That's question number one. And secondly, does your life show it? All of us should. 
I'm going to ask if you wouldn't mind, Pastor Nick, if you'll come up here. Can you escape the sound room for a minute? I'm going to use him for a little bit of a silly illustration, but if you got to embarrass somebody, it's the youth pastor. Amen? So, I asked his wife what fruit he likes earlier this week, and she said he likes peaches. Do you like peaches? So far in their new Lewed game, then we are, they're, they're one for one, all right, so far. So really simple, all you got to do is just take the can opener, open it up, and take a bite of peaches. Okay, it's not, it's not hard. You can't do difficult things with youth pastors. You have to give them easy jobs, okay, so they can understand. And uh, I, <laughs> so, and I thought, you know, he has a college degree, so he can probably operate the can opener. That's good. But uh, this says, uh, there we go. All you have to do is just just peel that up. You don't have to take it all off. Just... <laughs> okay. Now I just want to take a bite of peach. <laughs> no. That is actually um, turkey-flavored turnip greens. If you... <laughs> Good, isn't it? Oh, it's wonderful. I can't believe you actually took a bite. Good job. Thanks for your help. I appreciate it. Go back into your little room there. And now, silly illustration, but would you agree along with me that when it comes to canned goods, what's on the label is what should be on the inside? Yeah. This morning, I got to tell you this uh, because it was very traumatic for me. I had to switch labels on this for the purpose of this illustration and a bottle of glue exploded on me. Top, starting here to here, covered in glue this morning. So I washed off pretty good, didn't I? Uh, I couldn't believe it. I, I thought I would be just a mess. My wife offered to bring another suit, and I said, I think, I think I got it all, so praise the Lord for that. Wouldn't you agree along with me that a Christian should, what's on the inside, should match what they say on the outside? So that the label that we put on ought to reflect what's actually inside us? Can I tell you how destructive it is to the cause of Christ for a Christian to say one thing and talk about how they love the Lord and they love Jesus and they go to church and then they curse like a sailor or they lose their temper or they, uh, they wrong somebody financially or they rob or whatever, a bad testimony that they have. We ought to reflect what we say we are. And Jesus begins this sermon... And he says something that's kind of surprising. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He begins with the theme of happiness and joy. The word blessed here, makrias, is the original word, and it means simply happy. And that's interesting to me, because no matter who you are, everyone wants to be happy. Wouldn't you agree? Everybody wants to be happy. Now, it's also interesting that very few people actually find it. But they go to great lengths to achieve happiness, and yet it is elusive to many people. Dennis Holy was the author of Are You Happy? And he reports that according to surveys, only 20% of Americans are happy. With all that we have, with all the benefits that we enjoy, only 20% are happy. Studies have shown even in the dwarf world, only one in seven dwarfs is happy. I read, I saw a movie about that one time. 
Jesus teaches us that happiness is in the heart. It's not in our circumstances. It's in our heart. As we work through the instructions that he gives us here, we're going to be, I can just warn you right off the front, we're going to be repulsed by some of his directives. I mean, humanly speaking. We're not going to want to do what he says it takes to do to be happy. Because all his words here, especially in the beginning, they strike at, strike at the roots of human philosophy. Uh, every fiber of our being fights against what Jesus says we must do to be happy. And this is precisely why so few people find happiness, by the way. Happiness is not found in pursuit of it. You don't find happiness by pursuing happiness. Happiness is a result or a byproduct of doing right. Happiness more sneaks up on you as you live right, do right, and uh, treat people right, then happiness comes, it's not something that you seek and you find. Jesus gives us the recipe in John 13, 17. He says, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. If we live right and do right, happiness will follow. But what a claim that Christians make. We, we not only say that happiness comes through Jesus, but we confidently state that there is no uh, ultimate peace, joy, or fulfillment. There's none of that in money, in power, and in fame. Wealth can do many things, but it cannot buy peace of mind. Uh, the uh, fame can do many things, but it can't give us lasting joy. And power can do many things, but it can't free you from guilt. I'd say here that if Jesus uh, preaches a sermon, Jesus Christ himself preaches a sermon on how to be happy and all of us want to be happy, I think we ought to listen, amen? We ought to pay attention to what he has to say, and that's what we want to do. Now, the first section of the sermon here, we call this the Beatitudes. And there's nine Beatitudes altogether. Seven of them, the first seven, deal with principles of godly conduct. The last two deal with persecution for godly living. And so in these Beatitudes, Jesus describes and presents clearly that all of our Christian character flows from within. Uh, the Pharisees taught that righteousness was an external thing. Uh, just You have to follow the rules. They had all kinds of weird rules. Uh, Sabbath rules were the craziest. You could not carry... Here's a handkerchief. I could not carry this handkerchief from here to over here because that would be work. And so that was against the rules of the Sabbath. However... I could, if I wanted to have it, I could go to where the handkerchief was. I could pin it on my coat, and now I wasn't carrying it. I'm wearing it, see? And so they, they made all kinds of rules like this. You couldn't spit on the Sabbath because scuffing the, you might scuff it, and that would be irrigation. Uh, you couldn't look at yourself in the mirror on the Sabbath because you might be tempted to pluck a gray hair. Some of you would be working all day at that one, amen? Uh, but but uh, you, I said some of you because I'm including me. Preaching to me today. Uh, but, but they had all kinds of these rules, and that's how they declared their righteousness, by the things that they would do, the boxes they would check off. Jesus shows us it's not that. It's from in here. What happens in here is where your happiness and joy and contentment and fulfillment comes from. So let's get into the sermon uh, that he preaches here. Uh, we see, first of all, the awe and astonishment of the message. The hill, or the mountain, so to speak, was somewhere in the vicinity of Capernaum. And from this higher position, Jesus would be able to address the people and they would be able to hear him because of the layout of the land there. 
And if we were there today, we would have on one side a view of the Sea of Galilee, which uh, constantly changes uh, in its view because of the weather conditions there. The landscape in this area would be made kind of a checkerboard of diverse fields. You would have some fields would be red where the land was just plowed. Others would be yellow or white where they're ready for harvest. And yet others would be green uh, from grass and such. The surroundings was absolutely beautiful. And as we sit down to listen to Jesus' message, just uh, try to picture this uh, serene surroundings as he's about to speak. And when he does, he's not preaching a fiery sermon. Rather, he sits down and teaches them, much as a father would mentor his children, and uh, he starts to give them a sermon addressing the issue of happiness in the Christian life. And truly, by the way, that's what he wants for you, and that's what he wants for me. He tells us in John 15, 11, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain with you, and that your joy might remain full. And uh, so he starts out with happy, blessed, in preaching. That's the first word of his sermon, by the way, blessed. And in preaching, they teach us to uh, have a, uh, a gripping uh, introduction and a strong and stirring uh, conclusion in different parts of the message. In fact, I heard one guy say, there's three aspects to a great sermon. You have a strong introduction, a strong conclusion, and then put the two as close together as you possibly can. And that's going to be a good sermon, amen? Some of us would agree with that. But the word blessed here implies a deep, inward, abiding joy. And outward prosperity cannot give you this. And adversity cannot take it away. The English word for happiness. I don't know if you ever noticed this. The English word for happiness, happy, actually gives its own delusion away. Well, it starts with the word hap. It's from the root word hap, which basically means chance. And that's what human speaking, that's what human happiness is. It's dependent on the chances and the changes of our life. But can I tell you, that's not real happiness. Circumstantial happiness is not real happiness that Jesus offers. Uh, so, because if it's circumstantial, it's then also something that life can destroy. And I don't want to be in, in uh, I don't want to have a type of happiness that is here today and gone tomorrow. You ever know roller coaster people? I mean, today they're down in the pits and the next day they're so giddy it's almost annoying. Just up and down. I don't want to be a roller coaster type person. I don't like roller coasters anyway. I like go straight, Amen. Uh, so that's the type that we ought to be. So here he, he's telling us how to do this. Uh, the joy that God gives cannot be taken away. And it becomes very clear at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus here is speaking, by the way, for a joy and a happiness that's only available for believers because we find that Jesus' criteria for happiness is not the same as the world's criteria. In fact, they're very paradoxical, even in themselves. The directives he gives and the blessings that come from those directives, they don't seem compatible. They don't seem to match. By human standards, humility, suffering, persecution, this isn't the stuff of happiness. And yet Jesus talks about it as if it is. Matter of fact, the happiness that Jesus speaks of sounds like misery of a different name to most of us. Uh, just as we even go through the Beatitudes. Jesus teaches that misery, if it is endured for the right purpose in the right way, 
is not only will result, but is the key to happiness. Now, the world says happy are the rich, the successful, the powerful, the famous. Happiness is found in doing what you want to do, doing your own thing. Here's a buzzword that just grinds my gears every time I hear it. Follow your heart. That's, if you, people who follow their heart have followed it into a lot of really bad situations. Because the Bible says the heart is deceitful, wicked. We need to follow the one who created your heart, not your heart. Amen. That's a side point there. That was free. No extra charge. But happy are the rich, successful, popular. One of the most beloved, funny men in the 90s and the early 2000s was Robin Williams. He was rich, wildly successful, and almost universally loved. A lot of actors have a lot of haters. He really didn't. He was such a, just a lovable person, and everybody loved Robin Williams. Yet on August 11th, 2014, he took his own life. And I, I know there's probably all kinds of speculation. Of course, we don't know the details, but I do know this. Fame, riches, wealth... They don't give you true happiness. It's it's circumstantial happiness, but not true happiness like God offers. Now, in Jesus' day, different religious groups found happiness in a variety of ways. The Pharisees believed happiness was found in tradition. So they kind of looked to the past for happiness, doing what uh, came down from the past. The Sadducees believed that happiness is found in the present. They were a live-for-now attitude. They were kind of the liberals of their day. And uh, so their idea was live for the moment. The, there was another group called the Essenes, and they basically <coughs> shunned all comforts of the world, and they believed that separating from the world was the way for happiness. And then there was the Zealots. In fact, there were two disciples that were Zealots that Jesus had, and uh, they believed happiness was found in revolution and knocking off Rome, and so go against was their philosophy for happiness. And uh, different people had different beliefs, but as we study the... Beatitudes, we see an entirely different thing that Jesus is proposing here. It goes against human thinking, and it goes definitely against the thinking of religion. As we look at the Beatitudes, we find that they're progressive. They're step by step. They're not in random order. We sometimes may have read them, and it might seem like a little random, but they're not random. As we go through it, we'll see that uh, they build upon one another. And so let's look at the first one. We read it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me begin by saying what it does not mean. This verse does not mean you're blessed uh, when you're spiritually weak. This would glorify a lack of spiritual growth, those who are backslidden or living in sin. Spiritual weakness and spiritual deadness is not a blessing. That's not what this is saying. It's also not saying that uh, you're blessed because you're poor. Uh, financially speaking. Did you know that you can be poor and still be wicked? Poverty is not a righteous state. Boy, I wish our society would get that through their heads today. Just because someone's poor does not mean they're righteous. By the way, just because somebody's rich does not mean they're righteous either. Money is amoral, in scripturally speaking. There's not The Bible doesn't say money is evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself is not evil. 
And so just because a person's poor does not mean they're righteous. Jesus, by the way, I don't think would call blessed those that live in slums or they go hungry or they have diseases because they can't uh, afford health care. Uh, poor in spirit here is not talking about poverty of the purse, but poverty of the heart. You can be rich and still be poor in spirit. Abraham is an example of that. So what does Jesus mean by poor in spirit? In the Greek language, there's two words for poor that are used throughout the Bible. One is uh, penis. It's a man who has to work for his living. One who serves his own needs with his own hands. Uh, the working man, so to speak. He's not rich, but he's not destitute either. That's one word for poor that is not used in this verse. The other word is pokas. It's uh, reduced to beggary is what this word means. It describes absolute and abject poverty. This describes the person who has nothing at all. That's the word that's used here in this verse. So this beatitude becomes even a little bit more surprising then. Blessed is the man who is absolutely destitute. I think of Psalm 34, 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Have you ever been that poor man? Amen. The person poor in spirit realizes his utter helplessness without the Lord. And that's where we've got to come to in our Christian life. Uh, if a man realizes his own helplessness, then he'll put his trust in God. And when he does that, two things happen. Don't miss these, they're so good. Two things happen when you put your trust in God. They are opposites of the same thing. Well, number one, he'll become completely detached from things. He'll realize in his life that happiness and joy and peace and fulfillment, they don't come from stuff. Stuff is nice, but they're not going to bring those things. And the second thing will happen, he'll become completely attached to God. He'll know that God alone can bring him help and hope and strength and peace. It means a complete absence of pride and self-reliance. Poor in spirit is what that means. Being poor in spirit also means knowing yourself, accepting yourself uh, to the glory of God. It means knowing your strengths and your weaknesses, your abilities and your limitations. Knowing that you're, knowing yourself, by the way, uh, means that you don't go through life pretending to be something you're not. You just recognize who you are. You recognize your, I'm not, by the way, I'm not talking about the acceptance of sin here. That's never part of this discussion, but realizing your limitations, realizing what you can do, what God has for you, uh, and it's accepting yourself, uh, just yielding to God, allowing Him to use you where you are. In ourselves, we are bankrupt. In God, we are rich. Poor in spirit realizes that without God, our life would be a disaster. Poor in spirit yields to God to let Him use us and make us into what He wants us to be. When you're poor in spirit, you accept others because you've accepted yourself. A person that's poor in spirit, you may not agree with the other person or you may not accept their background, but uh, you, you will understand their strengths, their weaknesses. Again, not sin we're talking about here. I'll give you a great example. David in the Old Testament being chased by Saul. Listen to what he says in 1 Samuel 18, 18. And David said unto Saul, Who am I? What is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? When you're poor in spirit, you'll recognize uh, it, it'll be, it's really the opposite of pride if we really get right down to it. it. Rather than building oneself up, we realize what we are. 
who we are in our life. <clears throat> when you're poor in spirit, you accept your circumstances. Paul stated in Philippians 4.11, not that I speak in respect of want, but I have learned in whatsoever state I am, there would to be content. A person poor in spirit has the right attitude toward the things of earth and the things of God. When you live to promote yourself, you're going to become a slave to things and to circumstances. When you look to God for everything that you need, it sets you free from the praise of people. It sets you free from the quest of prestige. It sets you free from uh, demanding circumstances have to be just so. If you need nothing but God, then no one can be a threat to you. Isn't that wonderful? If, you don't need, if, if Jesus is enough for you and you just live for Him, then, then things don't have the, their claws in you like they do if that's what you base your trust in. Proverbs 13.7 is an interesting verse. This verse tells us that there's such a thing as poverty in riches and riches in poverty. This is what it says. There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. Have you ever known anybody like that? I've read about people like that in history. Um, you probably have seen movies or literature along this line of a man named Ebenezer Scrooge. There is that maketh rich, yet hath nothing. I think he would be a good example of that, don't you? And then, uh, there is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. Maybe that's you here today. You don't have much in financially speaking. Your bank account is, is not fat and it's not, you know, you're not uh, loaded down with a bunch of riches, but you, yet you feel rich because God's given you health. God's given you a family. God's given you a church family. Oh, we better, the older I get, the more clear it becomes to me what true riches really are. Monday morning, I came to the office, and uh, or maybe it was, I think it was Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning, I came to the office, and I normally have about 20, maybe 15 to 20 emails, because I'm very careful about anytime something comes I don't want to see, I throw it to spam, because I don't want to get a bunch of emails I have to go through. So, I, had a, I usually get about 15 to 20 emails. When I logged on to my email account, I had 255-some-odd emails. Well, that's weird. And uh, it turns out somehow I had been hacked or somebody wanted to be me. Can you blame them? Okay. Uh, so somebody hacked into something. And it turns out that they not only did that, but the next morning I got up and $5,000 had been taken out of my checking account which, uh, just tell you, on, in that particular account, I didn't have 5000 Now I sat in a negative, a deep negative. And, uh, of course, the bank's calling me. Hey, why'd you take all this money when you don't have it? You're in the negative. And it turned out to be about a three-day nightmare of trying to work this out, and thankfully it has worked out. But, uh, it again, are, is that true riches? I was trying to ho have perspective through all that. I mean, yeah, it's it's frustrating, it's annoying, but I'd a whole lot rather have that than a child get sick. I'd a whole lot rather have that than uh, an illness befall my wife or myself. That's something that is serious. You know what I'm saying? We better realize what our true riches are. There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. When we look through the Bible, we find examples of people who were poor in spirit. We know. Remember the publican, Luke 18, 13? Uh, the public in the Bible says he was standing afar off and would not so much as lift up his eyes into heaven and smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I think of Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 5. Uh, he said, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I think of Job. He said, Wherefore I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I think of Peter when he fell down at Jesus' knees and saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I think of Paul when he said in Romans 7, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. These men saw themselves. And by the way, most of those men were better men than me. And yet they see themselves in that way. That's being poor in spirit. Knowing that you are not somebody special. Knowing God's not lucky to have you. We're lucky to have Him. We're the one that needs Him. He's not the one who needs us. How do you become poor in spirit? And I'll go quickly here. I know we're running out of time. But uh, you starve the flesh. Uh, resist temptations, be weaned from selfish desires. James chapter 4, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. We need to learn to resist the flesh and pursue the Spirit. Number two, accept your situation. Uh, like Paul, learn to be content no matter what the ups and downs are that come your way. And then number three, surrender to God's will for your life and His plan. The Lord is the one you're trying to serve and trying to please. Number four, spend time in prayer and applying scriptures. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And then number five, set the focus of your life on the Lord and serving Him. Realize that you are nothing and can do nothing apart from Him. And I didn't say that. Jesus actually did. <clears throat> he said that in John 15, 5. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same shall bring forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. That's hard to hear, isn't it? We think we're quite accomplished. We've, uh, we've cured a lot of diseases. We've come a long way uh, technology and all those things, but Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And you know what? To prove the veracity of those words, try living without him for a while. And you'll see just how true that is. We saw the attitude about poverty, and we'll close with this, the award for being poor in spirit. When a person is dependent on the Lord, we are dependent on him for everything. Nowhere is this more true than in our salvation. Uh, when we put our faith in Christ and trust only in Him for our salvation, we have eternal life, and truly that is the only way we have eternal life. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He also said, I am the door. No man cometh to the Father but through me. Miss Oprah Winfrey, that great theologian, said that, uh, there are many ways to Jesus. There is not many ways to God. There's one way to God. It is through Jesus Christ. And we need to make sure that we understand that scripturally speaking. We are totally dependent on Him. There's a, I like just a few things I want to point out here about this verse. Uh, in giving up their own kingdom. And if we do that, our own kingdom and desires, the poor in spirit, the Bible says, inherit God's kingdom. It's a present reward. The Bible says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see that? It is a present tense word. Some want to make this future tense, but it's present tense. The kingdom is theirs, is ours right now. Not only that, it's a permanent reward. The kingdom of heaven. 
being of heaven, this blessing is lasting. The world's kingdoms definitely do not last. Men who rule as kings and presidents and prime ministers, they're only on the stage for a very short time. Many great kingdoms of the past have come and gone. Nineveh, Babylon, Rome, and many others. Uh, there's, they're nothing but ruins today. But the kingdom of heaven, friend, that's forever. The kingdom of heaven will not ever fail. It will not disappoint. It will always satisfy. That's why Jesus gives us those, uh, re, uh, those uh, investment recommendations He does when He says, lay up treasures in heaven. Because rust isn't going to get them there. Ah, rust. Ruins the best things, doesn't it? And uh, th- that nothing's going nothing's to deteriorate in heaven. It's a pure reward, the kingdom of heaven. If there's one thing most evident about earthly kingdoms is their ability to corrupt. But the heavenly kingdom does not corrupt, it purifies. If you live for the kingdom of heaven, you'll live better uh, than any other kingdom. It's a prestigious reward, kingdom of heaven. The honors of the kingdom of heaven are greater than anything that you could get here. The high position in the kingdom will be the possession of those, the Bible says, who are poor in spirit. God wants us to recognize our poverty so He can make us rich. He wants us to recognize our lowliness so He can raise us up. James 4.10 puts it clearly like this, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. But you keep trying to, and I keep trying to lift ourselves up in pride. It's going to be destruction. It's going to be a fall. Let Him lift you up. Being poor in spirit uh, yields future awards in heaven, but also wonderful blessings in the present if we just offer ourselves to Him. So I ask you today, are you poor in spirit? Do you accept God's plan for your life? You recognize your weaknesses, your limitations, but also understanding that His strength is available to work through you. Oh, I love the, I, I know I say this all the time, but I love this truth. God is much more interested, not so much in what you do as what He can do through you. Let Him work through you. Do you grasp what Paul shared with the Philippians? I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. On your own, you have no chance of success. With Him, you have no chance for failure. I think those are pretty good odds, amen? Get on board with that. Poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I'd like to ask a question this morning, dear friend. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's going to point you out and embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. But if you're here today and you say, you know, I've never actually become a child of God. I don't know if something happened to me today, I'd be in heaven. I hope so. I may even think so, but I'm not sure. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 15, these things are written that you might know you have eternal life. If you don't know, friend, would you slip up your hand and let me pray for you? I'm just not sure. Just not sure. Pray for me. Would that be you? Amen. See that hand? Anybody else? All right, and put your hands down. How about you, dear Christian? Are you living for the kingdom of you? Are you living for the kingdom of God? Do you spend more time building yourself up than you do yielding to the Lord with your life? Let Him work through you. Maybe God spoke to your heart about that today. Would you stand along with me as she begins to play?